What is rational is actual. What is actual is rational. Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hey guys, and welcome to Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. As always, I'm Credo. And I'm Glaucon. And on the show, our goal is simple. We want to take you on our journey from place to place, from era to era, to really put our ideas about the world and about ourselves to the test. And we hope by doing so, it will bring us closer to the truth, because it really does matter how we view the world. A quick disclaimer, the locations, topics, and ideas are solely for educational purposes and do not reflect in any way, sort, or kind the views of the hosts themselves. And with that, let's get on with the show. All right, so we're doing another episode tonight, and we're going to talk about the Republic. And the Republic is the longest dialogue. It's basically a book. You know, some people think of it as the first real text of poli-sci, political science. It's a book about politics, the structure of the state, what is a good state. It's a book about virtue, what is a good person. It links the state and the individual together in an investigation into those questions. What is a good state? What is a good individual? And some people think that the entire book is really about what is a good individual and that the state is something that's looked at just because it's a bigger thing that we can get a better idea of, a better grasp of. It's hard to look inside of an individual, but it's a lot easier to look at a state. It's a book about the relationship between virtue and happiness. It's also a book that could be thought of as a psychological text, a sociological text, obviously a philosophical text. It talks about epistemological questions and what that means is whether or not human beings can have knowledge and if they have knowledge what kind of knowledge is it and for Plato you know what is knowledge that's worthwhile and with that in mind right we can say that it's a book about the ultimate nature of the truth the ultimate nature of reality there are also some side topics that come up in the Republic the role of censorship in the state is censorship something that should be in the state. What is the proper use of censorship? Is there such a thing? What is the role of propaganda in the state? Is propaganda good sometimes? What would a utopic society look like? That's a central question in the Republic. What is the nature of justice? Whether or not it's possible to achieve a utopia on Earth is also another question. The book itself, the dialogue, the Republic, is about what a utopia would look like, but that doesn't mean that Plato thinks it's possible to achieve in the world, necessarily. So with these things in mind, we'll take a look at book one, and then in the next episode, we're going to take a look at book seven, which includes the allegory of the cave, and then we'll probably have one more episode about the Republic after that to just kind of look at some general issues. Yeah, I really look forward to getting into it. So why don't you open us up with a little introduction to book one. Okay, so book one is a very interesting book. When you first read The Republic, it might not seem like there's a whole lot going on in the first two, three, four pages, but it turns out that Plato is always doing a lot of stuff, and there is actually a lot going on, and some of the most profound of Plato's writing, I think, 
is evident in the first few pages of the Republic. The Republic is the longest dialogue, as we said before. It's also spoken by Socrates from memory. So he recalls this to some other characters in another dialogue later. The Republic itself is basically an account by Socrates of this interaction. So there are a few main characters in the interaction. There's Glaucon, who is one of Socrates' students, and one of Plato's brothers, actually. There's Polymarchus, who runs up to them. This is in book one. There are other characters later on. But Polymarchus is one of the people that runs up to him in book one, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And his name actually means warlord or general. And there's Thrasymachus, who's going to also appear in the dialogue. And he is going to represent the view of the tyrant. And his name, Thrasymachus, actually means fierce fighter. So he's a, a formidable fighter. He's also a sophist. And as we know from our earlier discussion of the lackeys, the sophists were martial artists and teachers of rhetoric. So he actually teaches the young for money, and that'll come up in the dialogue as well. And Cephalus, the father of Polymarchus, whose house Socrates and Glaucon go to visit, is a wealthy person who's getting on in years, and he made his money primarily by selling weapons, shields, and Polymarchus and Cephalus, as a side note, are resident aliens, so they actually can't fully participate in the political governance of the state or in the outcome of the state, just kind of as a side note. And another character that's present is Adimantus, who also has a very fierce personality. So we've got some very strong characters in this dialogue. The dialogue begins in book one with Glaucon and Socrates coming back from the Piraeus. And they're walking back towards Athens, which is home. And the Piraeus is the port of Athens. And it's about 14 kilometers away from Athens. So it's a serious walk. And as you would expect, it's going uphill because the port is going to be at sea level. The port is like ports today, kind of a rough and rowdy place where there's a lot of drinking and carousing. Sailors are coming in and they've been out on boats and they're ready to party. They're ready to have a good time. And so it's kind of a rough place. We can imagine that it's probably getting towards the end of the day. Dusk is coming. And they've been down at the port celebrating and enjoying a festival which is being held to induct a new goddess into the pantheon of gods. And this is happening, most likely, because of some kind of cultural integration that's occurred with another group of people. And I think it's the Thracians in this case. And they're inducting this god into the pantheon of gods that they're going to worship, include in their worship. And so on their way back home, they're tired, as we were saying. They're walking up the hill. And I'm just going to read this little section of the first page or so of the Republic. And this is where Glaucon and Socrates are walking up the hill, and someone sees them and wants to stop them and talk to them, right? So they send their slave to stop them, and the slave catches up with them and says, hey, my master wants to talk to you. This is relevant because a wealthy person would be the kind of person who would have a slave with them, and it's also relevant that the person who sent the slave doesn't himself try to run and catch Socrates. He sends the slave to do it. 
Once the slave points out his master, Socrates and Glaucon realize that it's Polymarchus, and this is the son of Cephalus. And so I'm just going to read this interaction here. Polymarchus said to me, I perceive, Socrates, that you and your companion are already on your way to the city. You are not far wrong, I said. And that's Socrates speaking. But do you see, he rejoined, how many we are? Of course. And are you stronger than all these? For if not, you will have to remain where you are. May there not be an alternative, I said, that we may persuade you to let us go? But can you persuade us if we refuse to listen to you, he said? Certainly not, replied Glaucon. Then we're not going to listen. Of that, you may be assured. So this is a quick little interaction here. And what we have in that interaction is actually a representation of the three possible political configurations of a state. Right? And it's not obvious when you first read that. It just seems like a kind of incidental thing. But we have this question that he asks him. You know, do you see how many of us there are? And here we're talking about majority. Look, if there's five of them, and there's two of Glaucon and Socrates, and they vote to see whether or not Socrates and Glaucon are going to be allowed to go on their way home, then the vote is going to be five to two, and they're going to have to stay where they are. If they're going to try to use strength to get away, we've got Socrates now, who's older, and we've got Glaucon, who's just one person, and we've got this rowdy group of five people who are, you know, potentially fighters and strong and ready to rumble, and they're standing in the way of Socrates and Glaucon going home. And so there we have the tyrant, and then we have this question where Socrates says, can't we persuade you? You know, can't we talk about this? And can't you listen to the best argument? And, you know, we can decide based on reason. And then Polymarchus says, well, not if we're not going to listen to you. And you can be sure we're not going to listen to you. So there we see the problem with this idea of the rule of wisdom, right? The, the problem with the rule of wisdom is that if people don't listen to reason, then there isn't going to be any resolution and you can't lead with wisdom. If you're going to lead with democracy, there are going to be people that are going to be forced to do things that they don't want to do, whether or not they have the right ideas. And then obviously, with tyranny and the rule by the strong, we have the same problem, right? So reason is going to get trampled in all three cases, really. And so what happens here is basically that Polymarchus wants Socrates and Glaucon to head over to his house and party with them, basically. Hang out, drink, talk, and have a good time. Glaucon and Socrates, although they'd like to go home and relax and sleep and take it easy, are compelled to go to the house of Cephalus, Polymarchus's father. And that's kind of the beginning of this long dialogue, the Republic. Right. And once they get to the house, they kind of enter into this really interesting conversation with Cephalus and the others where they begin discussing the merits of old age, which coming from Cephalus is important. It's both symbolic as well as a nod to the very frequent thing we hear even today, that a wealthy man who's happy, they can not only buy their means into the heavens, but they can also have a happier life than those who struggle. That's right. Absolutely. And the other thing to notice here is that it's normally considered to be the case by the masses, and I would say most people, generally speaking, think that wealthy people are more happy and that things like old age are going to be easier on you if you're wealthy. And as you said, you know, there is going to be this idea that 
they can buy their way into lots of things, out of trouble, and maybe even into the heavens. And so we see when they arrive at the house, Socrates describes Cephalus, and he says, He was seated on a cushioned chair and had a garland on his head, for he had been sacrificing in the court, and there were some other chairs in the room arranged in a semicircle, upon which we sat down by him. Right, so here he was sacrificing in the garden, and this is important because of what we were just saying. You know, he's getting on in years, and he may be a little bit worried about the way he's lived his life, and so he's doing a little extra sacrificing, doing a little extra appeasing of the gods, and making sure that the gods are going to be receptive to him when he passes over into that other realm, which we all have to one day pass into, right? So uh, the interesting thing here, right, is that wealthy people, and obviously this is always true, it's true today, but in antiquity, right, they would like erect temples. I mean, that's like a huge feat, requires a lot of money, tons of labor, erecting a temple to a god, you know, it's like, hey, look, I erected this temple to you. You should, you know, accept me when I pass over into, and, and join you in Hades, you know, take it easy on me. So that's in the background here. And he asks, Socrates says, look, you know, I want to know about old age. I want to know because we all have to go down this road and I want to understand, you know, how you're doing, whether or not life is good now that you're older or how hard is it, you know, what's going on with you. And so what Cephalus says, among other things here, I'll just read a little bit of this. He says, For let me tell you that the more the pleasures of the body fade away, the greater to me is the pleasure of charm and conversation. Do not then deny my request, but make our house your resort and keep company with these young men. We are old friends, and you will be quite at home with us. So here, Cephalus says, As the body's pleasures fade away, and here we're talking about ability to drink and have sex and things like that, as these things fade away, the pleasure and charm of a good conversation become all that more important. And this is interesting because we know that for Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, that actually a real philosophical conversation about the good life is about the best thing that you can have in life. It's about as good as it gets. There isn't anything better than that. There's nothing that is as good as a good conversation about authentic and valuable things in life. And here, this is only something that Keflitz is realizing once his passions have faded into the background. This is something that becomes clear to him. And then Socrates says, There is nothing which, for my part, I like better, Keflitz, than conversing with aged men, for I regard them as travelers who have gone on a journey which I too may have to go, and on whom I ought to inquire, whether the way is smooth and easy or rugged and difficult. And this is just what we were saying, right? That he wants to understand how the older person is going to think about this. And he says, a lot of people, a lot of friends of mine, a lot of other old people I talk to, they say things like, I cannot eat, I cannot drink, the pleasures of youth and love are fled away. There once was a good time, but now that is gone. And life is no longer life. And this is a common thing that we're going to hear, right, as people get older. And Cephalus tells Socrates, that's not what I think, though. He says, but to me, Socrates, these complainers seem to blame that which is not really in fault. For if old age were the cause, I too being old, and every other old man or old person would have felt as they do. And then he goes on to tell us that it's really 
a person's character or temper that is going to determine whether or not they're happy in old age. And this is the kind of answer to this question that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle would love to have, want to have. They want to say, look, the character and temper that you've developed over the course of your life is going to determine whether or not you're happy when you get old. Happy anytime, really. And the other thing of note here is that Cephalus tells Socrates that now that he's getting older and these passions, these sensual passions that he had in the past, passions for rich, luxurious food, alcohol, sex, things like that, once these have faded into the background, he feels, Cephalus says, as if he's escaped from a mad and furious master. And here the idea is a very common theme in Plato, that the passions shouldn't overwhelm reason. And here, Cephalus is saying, look, now that I'm older and that these passions have faded into the background, and now that reason can kind of like regain its natural throne as the leader, I feel like I've escaped from a mad and furious master. And really, in the background here is this idea that this is something that should ideally happen when we're young. When we're young, that is when our passions should be tamed and should be placed into servitude of reason. Obviously, that is a difficult thing to achieve, but it definitely would be a much better situation than finally getting my passions in check at the end of my life, right? And so going on from here, right, Socrates asks him, you know, a lot of people are going to think it's because you're rich that you're happy when you're old. And Keflis says, well, there's something to this, but not as much as people think. And this is important because this is actually Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle's view. Less Plato than Aristotle, some people argue, but I think that's not true because right here it is in the dialogue. Plato and Aristotle and Socrates think that your material circumstances do matter to some extent. You need to have shelter, food, and the basic necessities of life. If you don't have the basic necessities of life, it's going to be hard for you to be philosophical. It's going to be hard for you to have a reflective life. If you're lacking the basic things in life, it's going to cause you problems. And this, is, this comes up a little bit later because Cephalus explains uh, a little bit later on that what's really great about being wealthy is that you're able to pay your debts and that you're less likely to need to engage in criminality. And he actually says you're not going to need to engage in criminality, but I think that the real honest reading of this is that a wealthy person is going to be able to refrain from criminality and pay their debts, for example, more than a person who is poor. So what Keflis says here, he says, I do not say to every man, but to a good man, is that he has no occasion to deceive or to defraud others, either intentionally or unintentionally, when he departs to the world below. He is not in any apprehension about offerings due to the gods or debts which he owes to other men. Now, to this peace of mind, the possession of wealth greatly contributes. And therefore, I say that setting one thing against another, of the many advantages which wealth has to give to a man of sense, this is, in my opinion, the greatest. So what he's saying here is that the way that wealth helps you when you're getting older is that it allows you to leave this world without any debts, whether that's to other people or to the gods. Now, what's interesting here is that at first, this strikes people, I think, when they read The Republic as a very odd idea that paying your debts is the most important thing. But when we really think about this idea of paying our debts, and we broaden this idea to include things like our moral debts, which is implied because he's talking about what he owes to the gods. And that 
is really what people would be worried about owing to the gods, is their moral debts. When we think about justice, which is going to be the topic coming up here very quick, and this is really the first sort of idea about what justice is, is paying our debts. And the idea is that if I harm somebody, let's say I commit a crime, and I harm a person by stealing something from them, and I harm their family because they weren't able to enjoy the thing that I stole. I also harm that family because they feel less secure now and less safe. And all of these harms that I've now generated are actually things that I now owe some kind of a debt for. And this is an idea that we use in, in punishing people guilty of crimes all the time. They owe a debt to society, and they owe a debt to the victims in this, in the cases where they've done things wrong. And even in very subtle ways, we act this way. So, for example, you bump into someone and you say, I'm sorry. You know, there you're kind of recognizing that you've harmed them in some very slight way, and you're paying the debt by showing that you're sorry to them. Right? So this is a very common idea. And so this is kind of how Kephalus starts us out with this question about, you know, what is justice? And like I said, this is going to become the main topic here. Yeah, it really kind of takes over from here. And Kephalus, he kind of puts forward this idea, which, as I understand it, was the idea at the time that justice means living up to your obligations and being honest, as you just said, right? And then Socrates is quick to jump on this by using the example of returning a weapon to a madman. So here, right, the uh, operating definition that they have for justice that Kephalus gives them is it's to speak truth and pay the debts that you have, just like you said, and no more than this is what he says. And so then right here, right away, Socrates says, well, what about my friend comes to my house and he's really drunk and I've been repairing his AR-15 for him, fixing the trigger mechanism, and he's really drunk and he's upset. He's angry at his neighbors and he wants his AR-15 right now. Okay, so should I return the weapon to him in this drunk state? It is something that's owed to him, and it is something that I should legally return to him. It's something that he owns, and the answer is no, I shouldn't return it to him. I actually shouldn't even be honest about it. I should lie to him and say, I haven't fixed the trigger mechanism yet. It's not ready yet, so I can't give it to you. That would be the right thing to do. So this is a counterexample that he throws out there, right? And so that turns out to fail as a robust definition for what justice is. But as we recognized when we looked at the lackeys the other day and we were talking about courage, that doesn't mean that it isn't part of the answer to what justice is or what the nature of justice is. Right. And there's this overarching theme, I think, in a lot of these works where sometimes it's not exactly what it is, but maybe what it isn't. Or simply pointing out that it must encompass more than just one single situation, as this seems to do. This seems to be a little too narrow, right? And then Kephlis leaves for sacrifice, I guess fittingly so. <laughs> so what's interesting about Kephlis leaving in this way, when the conversation starts to get tricky, is that he's operating under the assumption that it's all about paying your debts, because he wants to make sure that he can pay his way into the heavens, right? So to speak, right? He wants to make sure that he can sacrifice, do enough sacrifices and grease the wheels of the gods enough to make sure that he slides into the afterlife that he wants. And the discussion starts to seem like it's going to cause problems for that view of things. And he wants to kind of hide his head in the sand. 
And what's relevant here is that this goes back to our conversation in the lackeys about how philosophers actually have to have courage. And this is an example of him running away, right? He, he doesn't want to have a courageous look at whether or not his view is the right view, right? And so he, from here, we go on and we refine the definition a little bit, right? And so here it turns out that maybe it's something like justice is the art which gives good to friends and evil to enemies. And so here... And people agree, right? Oh, yeah, this sounds right. So if we think about this definition real quick, this is kind of the definition in the Judeo-Christian tradition that's kind of captured by an eye for an eye, right? Where, you know, I do want to exact revenge on my enemies. I do want to harm my enemies. And I give good to my friends, right? But it's not the kind of view that Christ would put forward, which is something like you need to love your enemies, as your friends or love your enemies as yourself, right? So here, you actually wouldn't harm your enemies if you're taking the Christian point of view. And this is going to turn out to be the view of Socrates, actually, is that in the end, he's going to say, look, a just person can never produce injustice. A just person can never harm people and make them less just. But if I go around exacting revenge from my enemies, I'm actually making people less just or less well off. And so to really understand this idea, we have to kind of think about some of our other conversations that we've had, which is this idea that the good life, the virtuous life, and justice all have to be in sync in some sense. So if that's the case, a just society is going to be a society that's flourishing maximally. And if an individual is virtuous, they're flourishing to the maximum extent that they can be. But if I'm punishing people by exacting revenge on them and I'm making them miserable, making them worse off by punishing them, then I'm actually making them less just, less virtuous. I'm making them flourish less. And this is going to not make sense for Socrates. Yeah, I mean, Socrates' point calls into question our whole conception of modern day criminality and our ideas of punishment through prison or execution or, or whatever the punishment That's exactly right. So really, from Socrates' point of view, right, he thinks that a person, generally speaking, needs to be made better, right? And this comes out later on in the dialogue when he's interacting with Thrasymachus, right? Because Thrasymachus kind of gets superheated at, at a certain point in the conversation and wants to butt into this conversation between Polymarchus and Socrates. And they've been talking about the nature of justice now for a little bit, little bit of time. Polymarchus took over the conversation for his dad when his dad went to go continue doing sacrifices. And here's a little discussion. Socrates remembering the interaction. And Socrates says, Several times in the course of the discussion, Thrasymachus had made an attempt to get the argument into his own hands and had been put down by the rest of the company, who wanted to hear the end. But when Polymarchus and I had done speaking, and there was a pause, he could no longer hold his peace, and gathering himself up, he came at us like a wild beast, seeking to devour us. We were quite panic-stricken at the sight of him. Right, And so here, we see Thrasymachus arriving on the scene, and he is a very fierce person, and as we said before, you know, he's a fighter, and he wants to get into this conversation, right? And so he says, I don't want any of this nonsense of asking questions and never giving an answer like Socrates usually likes to do. 
I want clarity and I want accuracy. I want to have an answer to this question and let's not goof around here and play the skeptic and do the normal Socratic thing. So this is kind of how he arrives on the scene, right? Then Thrasymachus says, you know, I'll give you the answer to what justice is. And so I'll just read a couple lines here. He says, but what if I give you an answer about justice other and better, he said, than any of these? What do you deserve to have done to you? And so this is very interesting. Thrasymachus follows up his statement that he's going to give him an answer to the nature of justice. And then he says, what do you deserve to have done to you if I can give you a good answer? And this is just a bizarre thing to say, but it's what we would expect from a tyrant, right? Because the tyrant is going to be doing all kinds of things to people, whether or not they deserve to have them done to them, right? And is going to be perceiving the people that are having these things done to them to deserve them, right? Like any kind of a dictator in our imagination could do, right? And so this is Socrates' answer to this. He says, done to me, as becomes the ignorant, I must learn from the wise. That is what I deserve to have done to me. And so here we get this answer to this question you were talking about a minute ago about incarceration and punishment and criminality. And here, what Socrates is saying is, what I deserve to have done to me, if, I am, if I'm ignorant, if I don't understand what's going on, or I wasn't able to produce a good answer, is that I should learn from the wise. That's what I deserve to have done to me. And so here, this is Socrates' view about how we should take care of people that are not behaving the way we'd like them to behave in society. So instead of punishing people and making them worse off and making them worse citizens so that when they return to society, they damage society and harm us more, we actually make them better citizens so that they can integrate into society and function well and be part of the society and help the society be a more just place. So, you know, this is an old idea, <laughs> right? And it is an idea that is floated every now and then about criminality and what we should do with criminals and how we should try to make society a better place. And maybe what's also really illustrative of his temper is how he lets his emotion take over his reason faculties, right? And how he shows that he is more controlled by temper and emotion rather than reason, as well as the fact that he's a sophist, which means he's essentially more interested in delegitimizing the entire idea of justice rather than actually learning what justice is about, right? And you can tell that because of his definition of justice, which is basically that it's nothing more than the advantage of the stronger, right? And it doesn't pay to be just, right? I mean, we can, I think, all imagine certain criminals or certain people who are members of criminal organizations where they realize that as long as everyone else is following the rules in some ways, right? Those who don't follow the rules will always have the advantage. And that's exactly right. So we have this idea of a very strong person who's taking advantage of their strength. And this happens in groups all the time, right? It happens in groups where there are groups of people and the strong, physically strong, powerful person, the risk taker, is able to kind of seize control of things. And oftentimes there'll be a more rational, wiser person in the group who's now overshadowed by this character. And this is kind of the picture we have here. And just an interesting kind of thing to go on about Thrasymachus here, he kind of explains his idea, the interest of the stronger, a little more. And he says, and the different forms of government make laws, democratical, aristocratical, tyrannical, with a view of their several interests. And these laws, which are made by them for their own interests, are the justice which they deliver to their subjects. And him who transgresses them, they punish as a breaker of the law and unjust. 
So here we see that Thrasymachus's view, which at the very beginning sounds crazy, it's just the interest of the stronger, actually is a fairly reasonable idea. The idea being that there is no justice, grand sense of justice written in the heavens, as Plato would think there is. It's really just whatever governments say should be the laws. Those laws are put in place, whether it's a democratic system, a tyrannical system, or a monarchy. Those things are put in place by people that are in power, the stronger, and they're put there for their own interests. So they're put there to benefit those people that are in power. And they are the vehicles that deliver what is called justice to the subjects. And the subjects suffer at the hands of these systems of justice. Kind of going off what you're saying there is the notion that this conversation has also just changed at this point, because not only was it to define what justice actually is, but now it has to be proven to be worthwhile, right? Because in order to convince someone who is obviously not interested in justice, I mean, you know, sophists, they don't really rely on reason anyway, but even more so, you, you have to use some sort of strong reason and some compelling answer to show that the just person is actually the happier. That's right. Of the That's people. right. Absolutely. And so it, it's going to go on and, and Socrates is going to argue in this in book one, right, that it's obvious that the, the thing that leaders should be interested in is their subjects. And so a good leader is going to be best at caring for their subjects or taking care of their subjects. Right. And this is in line with what we would think is ideally the case, right? It's ideally the case that the person in charge, the leader, is the person that is looking out for the subjects and taking care of them, right? And then they get this conversation going about the good life and whether or not the unjust person who Thrasymachus is saying is going to be best off in the sense of real justice which is also a very interesting thing, right? That the conversation's turned in this way. But so Thrasymachus ends up arguing that it's better to be unjust and that you're going to do better if you're unjust because you're going to always be getting the upper hand on people, you know, as long as they think you're just. So if someone thinks I'm just, but I'm actually unjust, then I can get the upper hand on people. And then that argument kind of breaks down because it turns out that, no, you know, it isn't going to be the case that you're going to be best off and then he says, well, let's think about this, though, in the way that I'm thinking about it. I'm talking about on a grand scale, right? So Thrasymachus says, I'm speaking as before of injustice on a large scale in which the advantage of the unjust is most apparent. And my meaning will be most clearly seen if we turn to the highest form of injustice in which the criminal is the happiest of men and the sufferers or those who refuse to do injustice are the most miserable. That is to say, tyranny. And so here, the people that refuse to do injustice. So in other words, the soldiers under Hitler that refuse to do injustice are the most miserable because they're put to death and tortured along with the people that they were being asked to put to death and torture. So here, you know, the tyrant, when being the biggest and worst criminal of all the criminals is actually going to be someone that everybody else is lauding as the great person and the person that is loved by society. And we can kind of, you know, at least we have this kind of caricature of Kim Jong-un in North Korea to be this kind of a person where he's engaged in all of these kind of tyrannical activities, but everybody in the whole society basically worships him as a god, right? That's the kind of case that Thrasymachus is talking about here. And so once again, it's, you know, if we're talking about tyranny, 
it's certainly not a crazy view of tyranny of what that would be. What's interesting is they then start moving into the critiques of this, which both focus on the different arts and those who perfect the arts, right? And it also focuses on the idea of being ruled by an inferior person. What we see here in the case of Polymarchus throughout the book and Thrasymachus is that they are actually tempered and calmed down by reason in the end. So it is an interesting side point. Um, the point that you just made about the ruler and being ruled by a bad person is interesting too, right? Because we basically have this idea that there are only three reasons why a person would want to rule. One is money. Another is honor or legacy. The third is because you don't want to be punished. So to avoid punishment. So in other words, someone's going to punish you if you don't rule. And that just seems bizarre to say that when we hear that. And that's the one that Socrates actually thinks is the real reason that a person would want to rule. And so this needs to be explained. And if we think about money, it's obvious that if you're ruling, if so let's say, let's look at a democracy, for example. If I become president, then I could do that for money and make a lot of money after I leave office on book tours and, you know, giving speeches and public appearances. Or I could do it for honor. I want to have a good legacy. I want to leave this earth and think, you know, at least when I'm dead and gone, people will remember me as this guy who was uh, the president once and I did these things. I built this bridge. I negotiated this settlement with this group of people or whatever. So I could do it for those reasons. Or I could do it because I don't want to be myself punished. And what Socrates is talking about here, I'll just read this, he says, Now the worst part of the punishment is that he who refuses to rule is liable to be ruled by one who is worse than himself. And the fear of this, as I conceive, induces the good to take office, not because they would, but because they cannot help, not under the idea that they are going to have any benefit or enjoyment themselves. So here, the idea is that the only reason I decide to take the role of leadership, if I'm a good person, is, if I'm truly a good person, is to avoid someone worse than me doing the job and someone that's going to make society worse off. And that is the ideal case, right, of a leader. We want Ideally, we want a person to take office because they really want society to be a better place than it is. And, you know, we're talking about human beings here, and I think that most people that assume leadership roles uh, do do it for all three of these reasons, generally, in different proportions, right? So there's money involved, there's honor, and I think to some degree... There's always lurking in the background this idea that I really want to do this because I think I'm the best person for the job. I don't want someone else to do it who's going to be worse at it. So I think that is there, not to the extent that Socrates would like it to be there. but <laughs> Yeah, it is. And then kind of move into this back and forth about whether justice or injustice tends to be more advantageous, particularly about as it applies to the individual. And there's some interesting conclusions that come out of that. One is that Thrasymachus flips a 180 in terms oh, that's of That's right. And, and here we, we see this line where, he's, where uh, Thrasymachus, Socrates, re, you know, once again, recounting this, this uh, interaction says, Thrasymachus blushing, as we are now agreed that justice was virtue and wisdom and injustice, vice and ignorance. And he goes on to say, a statement was made that injustice is stronger and more powerful than justice. 
But now justice, having been identified with wisdom and virtue, is easily shown to be stronger than injustice. If injustice is ignorance, this can no longer be questioned by anyone. So here we see a movement in the direction that we would expect Socrates and Plato and later Aristotle to want things, want the direction that they would want things to go in, right? Where injustice is not going to be the answer, even if it seems the case for the tyrant. So we've got to remember when we, when we talked about the Republic in general earlier, that it's a text which is looking at both the state and the individual. And so here, the tyrant is the person who is being ruled by their passions, right? Which is the case, was the case of Cephalus as a younger person. In the beginning, we talked about Cephalus and the way that the passions had been subdued now. And so the tyrant is really the person who's being ruled by their passions. So they're actually under a tyrant. And the democratic person is a person who kind of goes with how they feel in the moment. So the democratic person is the person who wakes up one day and they're like, you know what, I really shouldn't drink. It is just not a good thing. I keep making bad mistakes when I drink. It's just not something I should do. And so they don't drink for a while. And then the day comes when they feel like drinking. And they've basically been outvoted. So there's a part of them. And in this case, when they drink, it's the bigger part of them. So that's the democratic person. And then the person who's ruled by reason is the person who actually lets reason dictate their actions and control their passions. And so the rational person is going to be like the rational state. It's going to be ruled by reason, and it's going to follow the dictates of reason, not the passions and not the majority. So now we end with this idea that, look, it really is the case that justice pays and that the virtuous and wise person is going to lead the happy life and that a state ruled by reason is going to be the best off. And we kind of end with this happy feeling. But then, as is often the case with Plato, things turn at the very end. And Socrates says, I left that inquiry and turned away to consider whether justice is virtue and wisdom or evil and folly. And when there arose a further question about the comparative advantages of justice and justice, I could not refrain from passing on to that. And the result of the whole discussion has been that I know nothing at all. For I know not what justice is, and therefore I'm not likely to know whether it is or is not a virtue. Nor can I say whether the just man is happy or unhappy. So here, once again, we end with confusion and we end with the realization, recognition that we haven't really figured out what justice is. We haven't really figured out whether or not it leads to happiness, whether virtue leads to happiness or justice leads to happiness. Okay, that was a great introduction into the Republic. And I'd like to now, before we get into some back and forth on the pros and cons of what we learned today, I'd like to take a quick look in how some people actually view the book itself. So Alan Bloom, for example, was one who has been pretty outspoken on it. And his point is that it's primarily more about a defense of philosophy itself and not necessarily concerned with justice at all. In other words, it's almost like a second apology. Right, Because Socrates was executed by Athens for practice and philosophy, and leaders had decided that philosophy was dangerous, and so they sought to get it out of their city. Socrates had called the old gods and the laws into question, and he challenged others to do the same, and obviously the city saw this as a threat. But it also tells the philosopher's relationship to the city. Right, While a philosopher can be potentially subversive to any regime, for that matter, 
the philosopher is crucial to the life of the just city. And I think that in some ways it's really difficult to read the Republic and not think that's the point being made. I would also like to point out that as a work of justice, I think it begs the question why justice needs to be defended at all. Now, while I'm not as well-versed as I'd like to be, my understanding is that at the time period, a lot of people are starting to reject the notion that there is this reward or punishment at the end of life to some degree, right? Because a lot of people are seeing that unjust people in their society continue to be very well off. The just people, many of them, despite how many good things they do, they're not really rewarded in the way that you would expect. And I think that Socrates is trying to answer to some of those concerns as well in this. And as Thrasymachus makes clear, justice is not assumed universally to actually be beneficial, right? There are many, many people who are considered immoralists. It really gives us a glimpse into the kind of philosophical landscape of the situation. And what I mean by that is that we have a lot of different cultures coming together. And as we said, right, they were down at the Piraeus and a festival where a new god was being inducted. So we see this idea of cultures mixing and coming together. And we have sophists like Thrasymachus here who argues for tyranny. We have other sophists who argue for moral relativism. We have sophists and others that argue for hedonism, which you brought up. And also calling into question the ultimate nature of justice. Is there such a thing? Is there a problem of evil where good people suffer and bad people flourish. All of these questions and problems are questions and problems that are alive and well today. And all of these issues are alive and well today. It is very interesting that the Republic could be seen as a kind of second defense of Socrates, right? Or a way to justify the life of Socrates, or a way to ensure the safety of the philosopher. And actually, I don't think that really ever changes because whenever there are revolutions, you know, the intellectuals are killed pretty quickly, <laughs> you know, generally speaking. And even in our society today, we see this kind of attack on reason where what's most important is the kind of current sway of things. It's so important that we don't really need to look at logical arguments as carefully as we might. We should just go with what's politically expedient or politically correct. And this is dangerous. And it was dangerous at the time of Socrates. In fact, it was dangerous enough for him to lose his life over it. And it's always dangerous. And it's dangerous today. So that's definitely uh, an interesting way to think about the Republic. And there are many, many ways to think about the Republic. Some people think it's the whole thing is a reductio ad absurdum to show that we shouldn't seek justice because the bringing about a just state has so many negative consequences, as we'll find out if we talk about some of them in the Republic in the sense of how society needs to be structured for us to have a just society. It becomes too expensive. So the whole work is really just something that's supposed to show that seeking justice doesn't even make sense. And that, that's a radical view on my on in my opinion, but it just shows you the variety of views we have here. And I mean, another thing to bring up real quick is that the Republic is one of these texts, like many other texts, that is kaleidoscopic in nature or multidimensional. And the kind of text that you can enter into 
as a sociologist or a psychologist or a philosopher or a political scientist, and you could walk away with a very different understanding of things based on how you're entering into the text. Or you could enter the text as a layperson and then reread it once you've finished some advanced graduate degree and you would have a completely different understanding of things. And it is coherent on many different levels. And that is part of the puzzling nature of the Republic. And it's similar to another text, which I like to mention sometimes when I talk about the Republic, that is a similar work, is the Tao Te Ching, which was written by Lao Tzu in ancient China around the same time as the Republic was written. And it is also a book that compares and contrasts and talks about the state and the individual in a comparative way. And it's also a book that's focused on the just state, the just ruler, and the virtuous person. And it was written by a person who was leaving society, sick to their stomach at the nature of society and how it was running, how it was working, how it was put together. And so sick at the state of society that they left the country. And this is similar to Socrates, really, right? Because Socrates is so disgusted at the state of things that he's willing to die, right, basically, for speaking up for what's right and similar kind of situation. So just a few thoughts, but yeah, excellent, excellent question. And it's definitely a way to conceive of the Republic. Just to kind of touch on a part of something you mentioned there, it does seem, and we were actually talking about in advance of this, as well as just in general, we were talking about a few days ago, the Republic. And, you know, I kind of mentioned to you that it's mind boggling how relatable so many of these issues are, and sometimes not even just relatable, but just so apparent, even in the present day. And, you know, it's just like, have we had this on the books for the last 2,500 years, and yet we still choose to keep making the same mistakes that they were making back then? And I think you made a really fair point by saying that, I mean, evolution-wise, we haven't really changed in the last tens of thousands of years, right? So, I mean, we still have the same understanding. We still have the same problems. We still have the same motivations, the same kind of primal instincts. Um, one thing that CDC Reeve and how he interpreted it, which I thought was also very interesting, is that Thrasymachus was not just making the assertion that these norms and mores of justice are convention. Again, this is just an interpretation. But he's almost saying that these norms and conventions are put in place by rulers so that subjects stay in a constant state of oppression. Which, again, to talk about relatability, it almost feels like modern-day conspiracy theory rhetoric, right? Which I think is interesting, especially when you combine with the fact that reading the Republic can lead you to an idea of thinking that the philosophic class, the ruling class, as Plato would have it, tends to be elitist. And not just elitist, but elitist in a way that it's almost like a, a mandated caste system where the ruling class always maintains a lot of authority over the subjects below who are almost minions who work only to make sure that the ruling class keeps their power I just thought that was really interesting to see the through line from then to now. Well, absolutely. It can be used in so many good and bad ways, right? So the Republic, you know, has been used by people to argue for something, you know, for dictatorship, right? And for uh, tyranny, because it's going to turn out, right, that Plato is basically arguing for tyranny by the wise, you know, and a perpetual kind of upper class 
of these wise tyrants who, because they're wise, are going to sort of like cause the state to flourish maximally, better than the evil tyrant, obviously, and better than democracy. It's interesting, right? Because in ancient China, there's this back and forth about the evil and good emperor. And in the I Ching, there's all this discussion about the evil and good emperor. And so these are conversations that happen other places, but they obviously happen in the Republic, you know. And it is why I mentioned earlier that it may or may not be the case that this can be something that's actually realizable in the world. Can this system be realizable? Maybe not. And are we really talking about the individual person ruling themselves by reason, or are we talking about the state, right? So these are kind of questions, right? And is it sort of like safe to make the argument that this is a book about the person and then talk about the state? <laughs> you know, is it a way to sort of like avoid punishment, right, from the state? Um, that's another possibility. Are they really both two sides of a coin? That's also a possibility. Yeah, so, so many great questions and things to wonder about, and this idea of a caste system, because really what Socrates puts forward, Plato puts forward in the Republic, is an idea of a caste system, as you said. And then the idea is that the lowest caste gets to have as much money as they want, and the upper class that's ruling the committee of the wise has to take a vow of poverty, right? So there is a way in which it is a caste system, but there's a way in which Plato tries to flatten it, right? Whether or not that works is another question. So yeah, it is interesting. It's truly fascinating and maybe even more fascinating that we're only on book one. <laughs> but, you know, book one of the Republic, whether it's a definitional search for justice, a critique of the sophist or and or a reflection of the time and reaction to the execution of Socrates, there are some undeniable points I think we can all take away from this. First, that it is beneficial to engage in justice. Beneficial in the sense that it benefits the person who is just and not necessarily just those who are unjust, even if there is no clear definition of what justice actually is. Second, there are clear definitions of what justice is not. It is not the will of the stronger, for example. It is not simply following tradition, law, or being honest all the time. And it's not simply doing benefits to friends and harm to enemies. And as we've kind of mentioned, all harm in all cases is wrong. Justice in the city is analogous to that of in the man. And that's where we'll actually pick up in these next two episodes. I want to leave it, though, just with a quote by James Madison. And I think this hits on some of the things we've mentioned here. So the quote is, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and the next place, oblige it to control itself. Because in some ways, maybe the best way to look at this is not the level of freedom that the citizens within the government have and under the government have, but the amount of order that the government itself and the country itself has and the fact that they're moving in the right direction towards justice. We want to inspire you in your search for truth, but keep in mind the complexities and nuances of each side. And we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends. <laughs>